The text for this morning's sermon is Revelation 11, the verses 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are currently living in what the Bible calls the last days the time between Christ's ascension and his return. In 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. As Christians, we will face increasing difficulty in this world. The world will not understand us because we have a completely different perspective on life than it does. The result is that as church, as people of God, we will face increasing ridicule, oppression, and persecution. Last week we saw that the church is to be a witnessing church, sharing God's grace in Jesus Christ with those living in darkness. Yet the church will also be a suffering church because many will reject our testimony and hate us for it. In our sermon series on Revelation, we are coming to the end of the trumpet blasts. We've considered the first six blasts which signaled God's wrath and judgment on the world and its sins. Today we come to the seventh trumpet blast. Just like with the seventh seal, it signifies the end of time, when God's kingdom will come in all its fullness. Ultimately, God will be victorious over all his enemies. 
Jesus will reign over this world and all those who are in it. He will judge the living and the dead. Wrath and condemnation will fall on the ungodly and on the, and on the unrepentant, while God's chosen ones will be gathered into his kingdom and receive their reward. Thus we see how our text gives us a perspective as we live out our lives in this fallen and broken world. At times we may despair, seeing the progression of evil in this world and how attempts to hold this in check appear futile. At times the ungodly forces against the church may be strong. It may seem like the church is being wiped out. Yet our text teaches us there's more going on than meets the eye. Christ has won the victory over Satan by dying on the cross to pay for our sins, by rising again to grant us new life in him. He is king on the throne in heaven. He continues to gather and defend and preserve his church. He's working towards the final day when his victory will be made evident to all. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. With the seventh trumpet blast, God reveals the coming of Christ's kingdom at the end of time. The seventh trumpet blast announces Christ's victory, the nation's judgment, and the church's reward. In John's vision, he sees the seventh angel blowing his trumpet. The result is that we hear different voices in heaven. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of, this, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The 24 elders worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. They continued saying, the nations raged, but your wrath has come. Beloved, I want you to note the use of the tenses of the verbs in these verses. They're all in the past tense. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Why is the past tense used when none of these things have happened yet? The tense of the verbs used here is often described as the prophetic perfect. The events are described as being fulfilled because it is absolutely certain that they will happen. Christ has already won the victory over Satan by his death and resurrection. Christ is already ruling over all things from the throne in heaven. Yes, Satan still has power on the earth today, but his ultimate defeat is certain. That's why John hears voices describing the last days, the last day in the past tense. For the day of the Lord will come, the things foretold will happen. What does the seventh trumpet blast signify? It clearly signifies the end of the age. John heard voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Bible is clear that right now the world is under Satan's dominion. Jesus spoke of Satan as the prince of this world. John writes in 1 John 5 verse 19, We know that this whole world is under the control of the evil one. The thing we need to understand is that Satan is a prince of this age. He's the ruler over this dark world. Yet our text speaks about the day when Jesus comes back to earth again. It speaks of the day when he returns on the clouds of heaven. Paul writes about that day in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 saying... For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. On that day, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. God and his son, Jesus Christ, will reign over this world and all who are in it. Satan will be completely vanquished. He and all God's enemies will be banished to hell. Now, beloved, we need to remember that much of what is written in Revelation finds precedent in the Old Testament. So we ask the question, where in the Old Testament do we read about a seventh trumpet blast that results in the Lord being victorious and vanquishing his enemies? There's a close parallel to Joshua 6 which we read together. What is striking is that both Joshua 6 and our text make reference to the presence of the ark. Central to the procession that marched around Jericho was the ark of the Lord. In our text, with the seventh trumpet blast, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. So what was the ark of the Lord? And how did this function in the Old Testament? In Exodus 25, the Lord gave Moses instructions for the building of the ark. It was a box made of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches deep. Inside and out, it was overlaid with pure gold. The covering over the ark was a slab of pure gold that fitted perfectly over it. It was called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat were two golden cherubim. That's a kind of angel with their wings touching No human hand was allowed to touch the ark. It was carried by wooden poles overlaid with gold. The ark was placed in the most holy place inside the tabernacle and later the temple. It is the place where God symbolically dwelt in the midst of his people. The mercy seat was God's throne. Once per year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins. It is amazing 
that the God of heaven and earth condescended to live among sinful people. The ark represented God's presence among his people. When God's people traveled through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, God led the way. Numbers 10 verses 35 and 36 says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Thus it was by means of the ark that God dwelt among his people, and that he led them on the way to the promised land. Jericho was the first city Israel encountered when they came to the promised land. It was a walled city. By human standards, it was impregnable. When the city ruler closed the gates and posted soldiers on the walls, Jericho was considered unconquerable. How was an attacking army to fight against soldiers protected by thick walls who had the advantage of being able to shoot down arrows on anyone who got close? Yet God led Israel in conquering this city. God showed them his absolute power and majesty in the manner in which he fought for his people. By means of the ark, God showed his people how he would lead them in conquering the seven Canaanite nations living there. At Jericho, the Lord commanded Joshua to organize a march. Seven priests blowing seven ram's horns went before the Ark of the Covenant. Armed men were walking before and after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. On days one to six, they made one procession around the city. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. And then, at the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people to shout. The people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. Thus the Israelites entered Jericho and conquered it. God gave them victory over their enemies. He showed himself to be the all-powerful God. The victorious king. The ruler over all. In the Old Testament, David celebrates God's victory over his enemies in Psalm 68, which we'll sing in response to this sermon. He says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. David speaks about how the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. He pictures God ascending on high with captives in his train and receiving tribute from those whom he conquered. A picture of God's glorious triumph over all who formerly opposed him. In the same way, God's victory over his enemies is celebrated in heaven 
in John's vision. The angel shouted, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We need to understand, beloved, that Jesus has already won the decisive battle against Satan. When he died on the cross to pay for our sins, when he rose from the dead to give us new life. Yet Satan still has power on earth today. Our fight against him is not yet finished. He's busy tempting people, trying to lead us astray. Yet when the seventh trumpet is blown, he will be utterly defeated, like Jericho was. Then Christ will become king over heaven and earth and all creatures. Next, in heaven, we hear from the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before the throne of God. They represent the leaders of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Thus, they represent the church of all ages. They fell on their faces and they worshipped God. They said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Please note, beloved, how the description of God Almighty has changed. In Revelation 1, verse 4, God is described as one who is and who was and who is to come. But here he's described only as God who is and who was. Do you know why the who is to come is not added? It's because John is describing Christ's return. The final day when God appears in glory to all people. We see the church of all ages praising and glorifying God because the final day of Christ has come. He will be revealed as Lord of lords and King of kings to all people. And every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Beloved, we may look forward to that day. To the day when God's temple in, he in heaven is opened and the ark is seen within it. Remember, the ark symbolizes God's presence among his people. It was the Lord's presence among his people that allowed them to conquer Jericho in such a spectacular manner. It's the blast of the seventh trumpet that symbolizes Christ coming on the clouds of heaven. On that day, we will shout with joy at God's victory. Together with the angels in heaven and the church of all times, we'll rejoice in the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. This brings us to our second point, and we'll see how the seventh trumpet blast announces the nation's judgment. In John's vision, he saw heaven opened and the ark revealed. He heard voices of angels and of the church of all ages shouting for joy to the Lord. The end of our text also shows that Christ's return is accompanied by flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy rain. These symbols often accompany God's coming down to man. Think of the manner in which the Lord revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. 
The people took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled greatly as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord himself spoke the words of his covenant to his people. Exodus 20 verse 18 summarizes how Israel experienced this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They were awed by the Lord's majesty and greatness. At various points in Revelation, we hear about the Lord sending forth flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, earthquakes, and hailstones. Just like at Mount Sinai, these are symbols of God's coming and appearing to man. In these natural phenomena, we see God displaying his majesty and splendor. Yet lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hailstones are also intended to show forth God's judgment on all who oppose him. If they do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they will come under God's fierce wrath. Our text makes this explicit in verse 18. It speaks of how the nations raged, but how God's wrath came. We know from Psalm 2 about how the nations rage and the people's plot against God speaks about how the kings of the earth take their stand and how the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Ungodly people are not willing to submit themselves under God's righteous rule. They want to live life their own way, to promote their own ungodly agendas. Yet Psalm 2 goes on to show how God laughs at them, how he holds them in derision. For the powerful rulers of this world are ultimately powerless before God and his anointed king. Psalm 2 speaks prophetically about how God would cause his son to sit on the throne at his right hand. How he would rule them with a rod of iron and crush those who refuse to submit like a clay pot. Think for a moment about the people living in Jericho while Israel was gathered on the other side of the Jordan River. They had heard about the great God of Israel. Rahab made it clear to the spies they knew of God's mighty acts against Egypt and how he led Israel through the midst of the Red Sea. They were aware of how Israel, by God's power, had defeated Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, while their hearts were filled with fear because of the Lord, they refused to repent of their evil deeds and to submit to him. Thus God put them under the ban of destruction. When Jericho was conquered, all its inhabitants, except for Rahab and her family, were killed. Our text makes clear that in the same way, the ungodly and unrepentant will come under God's condemnation. It speaks about God destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
The destroyers of the earth is a reference to all those who oppressed and persecuted God's people. Please remember that in the first part of Revelation 11, we saw how the witnessing church suffered greatly, how it was even put to death for their testimony of the gospel. Please remember the prayers of the souls under the altar, crying out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? On the final day, when Christ returns, he will answer those prayers. The final day will not be a good day for those who refuse to submit themselves to God, for those who oppressed and persecuted his people. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul encourages God's people to remain steadfast in the faith, in the persecutions and afflictions they were enduring. He speaks about the righteous judgment of God and how God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflicted them. Paul speaks of the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Paul says God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The end of the ungodly and unrepentant will be terrible. They will suffer eternal condemnation. This brings us to our final point. How the seventh trumpet blast announces the church's reward. In his vision, John not only saw God's condemnation of the wicked. Our text also speaks about how God will reward his servants, the prophets and saints, and those who feared his name, both small and great. The first question we need to ask here is, who is it that God will reward? Some commentators make a distinction between two different groups of people between the prophets and other believers called saints, those fearing your name, both small and great. This seems to be a rather arbitrary distinction. Early in Revelation, earlier in Revelation 11, John saw a vision of the two witnesses who would prophesy for 1,260 days. Last time we concluded that these two witnesses represented the church fulfilling its witnessing task. As Christian believers, we are all prophets, priests, and kings. Thus we see that the church of Jesus Christ is called by different names in our text. We're identified as prophets, as those who confess Christ's name. We're identified as saints, as holy ones set apart for God's service. We're called those who fear God's name. The reference that this includes both small and great comes from Psalm 115. There it speaks about how the Lord will bless those who fear him, both small and great. 
God doesn't make the same kind of distinctions that we make. He doesn't measure by the standards we often use. He promises his blessings, his rewards on all who fear him. It's instructive that in our text, God's blessings are identified as rewards. When you have a job, you earn payment for the work that you do. At times, your boss may be pleased by the effort you've put in. He may decide to give you a reward. You get paid for work. A reward is something extra you did not merit. God's grace is not something any of us deserve. It's not something we can earn, something we can merit. Yet God promises to reward those who love and fear him. The fact that God's blessings are a reward and not something we merit is made clear. And that when heaven is opened, John saw the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark was covered with the mercy seat that had two cherubim with outstretched wings over it. This was God's dwelling place in the temple and in the tabernacle. It's called the mercy seat. For it was by God's divine grace that he was willing to dwell in the midst of a sinful and often rebellious people. It was by blood sprinkled on the mercy seat that the high priest made atonement for Israel's sins. This pointed forward to the atoning blood of Christ that would be shed for us on the cross. You see, beloved, it's not because we're such great people that God will allow us to share in the eternal inheritance that he has promised us. Our inclusion among God's people is only because of God's mercy in Christ. It's only because Jesus was willing to suffer and die on the cross for all our sins. Consider Rahab, the prostitute, whom God rescued from among all the people of that great city. She was not spared because of her worthiness, God was gracious to her. He gave her an inheritance among the people of Israel because she believed in the Lord. Our salvation is by grace alone. And beloved, we can share in God's blessings by faith alone. Beloved, do you want to share in the rewards God promises in our text? Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sins before him and repent of them. Do not be wise in your own eyes or walk in the paths of your own choosing. Jesus Christ is king. Submit to his lordship. Obey. His commands. Be a living member of Christ's church. Confess Christ in all that you say and do. Even if you have to suffer ridicule or oppression or persecution for Christ's sake. 
We're living in the last days. Increasingly, we will face opposition from the people of this world. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. If we join in their walk of life, they'll approve of us. But if we don't, they'll be out to get us. Yet God calls us to be faithful in word and deed. Our text provides us with so much comfort and assurance. On the final day, Christ will establish his kingdom in heaven and on earth. If we persevere in our commitment to Christ, our faith will be vindicated on the final day. Christ will acknowledge us before his Father. He will make the innocence of his people known to all men. All the wrongs of this earth will be made right. God will reward us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will cause us to possess such glory as the heart of man could never imagine. He will dwell among us, and he will be our God. He will allow us to reign with him eternally over all creatures. These are the gracious rewards God promises to his witnessing and suffering church. May God grant us his grace and spirit so that each one of us here today may share in his blessings on the final day. Amen.